0: Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. the raging of the nations against Christ can clearly be seen in King Herod of Old and on just about all of the news broadcasts today. The nations still rage against Christ, which at least in a superficial sense ought to make our politics very simple. If Christ is for it, so am I. If it is contrary to Christ, then I am against it. But who are these nations, and where do they come from? Whatever your results may have been from 23 and me, biblically, you can trace your roots back to Noah and to his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. From these, God brought forth all the nations of the earth, not as a product of Babel, not as a punishment, but as part of God's good creation. He had repeated what he said to Adam and Eve in the garden, to Noah and to his sons, be fruitful and fill the earth. But of course, that was the opposite of what these nations did. Fill the earth, no, how about if we all conglomerate into one homogeneous mass around our technology, the tower, ascending into heaven, making gods of ourselves? What God does then is takes the nations, scatters their tongue, and scatters them in the places that He had already ordained them. To be. It also becomes evident that God at this time disinherits those nations. He says, I will no longer be their God. This will become evident in some of the texts I'll quote to you momentarily. But you'll simply recall that God selects a man from among these nations, and that man's name is Abraham. And he promises and says specifically to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. You can think then of how from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, Jacob, God changes his name to Israel, and this is the origin of that nation of Israel. So at Mount Sinai, he says to them, I am the Lord your God. He says this not to all the nations, but to the nation of Israel. And in Exodus 19, he says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now what countless scriptures foretell is that God will become man, and he will reign over Israel, he will reign over Judah, But in this reign, he will not reign over this one nation only, but will begin once more to reign over all the nations of the earth. As I said, countless scriptures could be mustered to evidence this, but how about just one from Psalm 82? Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit The nations. Or how about a little further in Psalm 2, where the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. This is why we see the Magi coming from the East, from another nation, at the completion of this prophecy that God would come in human flesh to reign as the king of the Jews, but not as king of the Jews only, as king of all the nations. Thus then you can see why it is that Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them everything that I have commanded. In other words, his reign as the crucified and risen Christ is over all nations and he would have all become citizens of his kingdom. If they reject him, he rejects them. Otherwise, they belong to him. Why then do the nations rage? They want nothing to do with Christ. Theirs is a reign of selfishness. The people in power reign for themselves, for their own good, and for the good of those that they like, which is just a fancy way of saying for their own good once more. The world is filled with a reign of selfishness. And of course, no one embodies this better than Herod. We read of the contrast between these two kings. It's set up very nicely for us by Matthew. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born, the king of the Jews? We have a king versus a king. Brief history on Herod. Herod was an Edomite, an illegitimate king. The Edomites came from Esau, Jacob's twin brother. The Edomites, Edom, a land that was once then called afterward Eudemia, is where Herod comes from. You might remember that this land, of course, belonged to God's people, and then when the Babylonians came down and conquered it, destroying the temple, it belonged to the Babylonians for a time. After this, God raised up Cyrus of Persia. He smashed the Babylonians and allowed the second temple to begin being built again. These are the last prophets of the Bible before the intertestamental period. They're prophesying during this time. Alexander the Great rises up and conquers the Persians. One of Alexander's generals, Seleucus, then takes the reign over this particular part, and that is then the reign of the Seleucids or the Hasmoneans, and it's during this time that the, those from Eudemea are converted. The Edomites are forcibly converted to Judaism, which is to say they're circumcised. This is how Edomites, and thus the line of Herod, come to be part of the Jewish people. After the Seleucids and Hasmoneans come the Romans. And the Romans appoint Herod to be king of the region in about 40 B.C. Herod, as you probably already know, is a great guy. Completely selfless. No, selfish, power-hungry to the extreme. So self-serving that when it benefits him, he will be responsible for the murder of one of his wives for the murder of a couple of his sons, whom he perceives to be rivals. Now imagine how upside down this is, that the man loves power more than he loves his own wife, more than he loves his own sons. And of course then we see why it is that Herod the king is so troubled when the Magi comes, speaking of the king who is to supplant him, the true king of Israel. Herod is troubled and then all of Jerusalem is troubled with him. Herod's troubled because he's going to lose his reign, or so he thinks, and all the people are troubled because they don't know what Herod is going to do. What Herod does is profoundly wicked. In order to retain power, he has the Bethlehem boys two years and under slaughtered. Estimates range from six to to 14,000. It's probably somewhere between those two. The historian Josephus also tells us that Herod was so concerned, he had led, led such a wicked life, he was so concerned that when he died no one would mourn for him. He commanded a large group of distinguished men to attend his funeral and commanded that they would all be slaughtered so that Displays of grief for them would also redound upon him. Of course, thankfully, he was disobeyed in this. But we see this kind of insane egotism and lust for power. And in an ugly example like Herod, we can view it as a mirror into our own hearts, our own craving for power and control. I think we see this even very subtly in our health, how irritated and offended we get when our health is taken from us. But what an opportunity to praise God in humility and to realize that we're not in control, He is. Same when we think of our control in the lives of others. It's good to influence them according to the reign of Christ and His Father But to outright control, that might be a very narrow purview vocationally given to you. Otherwise, it's simply the craving of the ego, of power. We even desire to have power and control over the opinions of others, especially regarding ourselves. I'm always reminded of a certain Korean king, who had his biographers following him on a hunt when he fell off his horse. And then he commanded them not only to not write that, they, that he fell off his horse, but also that he told them not to write that he fell off his horse. And so they write both. He fell off his horse and he told us to be quiet about it. This is the kind of foolishness and egotism that is the selfish reign of fallen man, whether it's writ large over nations or writ small in your own heart, where Christ does not reign, their ego reigns, their power reigns, their selfishness reigns. But Christ comes in such wonderful contrast. He comes as one who will do not his own will, but the will of his Father in heaven. He subordinates himself to that will and reigns accordingly, and that means ultimately that he will reign in complete selflessness by dying on the cross. This indeed is the magnificence of his birth and of his passion, that as he is declared to be king of the Jews... Indeed, as king of the Jews is tacked above his crucified head, we see him as that very one who has come to reign not just over the Jews, but over all the nations of the earth. And he, as our king, lays down his own life for us, doing that which no earthly king would ever do. He would ask you, to lay down your life for him, or your children to lay down their lives for him, but here our king lays down his life for us. In this time in the history of our country especially, we should remember that the so-called separation of church and state is specifically that the state should keep its nose out of the church. Not that the church should keep its nose out of the state. And this error when the church tries to keep its nose outside of the state, as it were, creates a vacuum. And that vacuum is simply filled with all the stuff we see today. Competing religions, which ultimately are all one. And that is the religion of the Antichrist. That which is opposed to Christ. Either Christ reigns, and you will have him, or you'll have a statue of Bahamut. Needs to be beheaded, and thankfully was. But Christ doesn't say, I've come to reign in the church, and everything else belongs to Satan. No. He comes to reign as king over all. Both kingdoms are those that belong to his right hand and his left, his hands. You might recall what we all just prayed and sang together in Psalm 72. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. And when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, we're praying that his reign would come. Now, it's going to come without our prayers, but we're praying that it would come into our midst as well. That means we're praying that God would send his Holy Spirit, convert hearts and minds, but also that he would rule not only his right-hand kingdom, but his left-hand kingdom. That God would send us Christian, pious, godly rulers. Because the opposite, the only alternative, are the same. Those who are opposed to Christ and those who despise him. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. And that means, my brothers and sisters in Christ, blessed are you, and blessed are we, because men and angels, all who serve the one true King, will indeed reign with him. And when he establishes his heavenly Jerusalem here on earth, all the nations will bring their wealth into it and lay it at his feet. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.